Welcome to Yarns at Yin Hu, a podcast about the fiber arts and other post-apocalyptic skills. Episode 278, Fern Flares, Saturday, May 22nd, 2021. I'm your host, Sarah. You can find me on social media as Sarah Pomegranate. Each time I record an episode, I post show notes, photographs, and links to things I talk about on my website, yarns at yinhu.com. Today's episode includes the following segments, the back porch, the front porch, and so forth, and off the shelf. I want to thank you for all of your correspondence. Uh, say uh, hello and welcome to new listeners to the show. I'm so glad you're joining me. And thank you also for your pattern purchases. There have been quite a few over the past weeks, and I'm very grateful your pattern purchases help to support the podcast and keep things going over here at Yarns at Yin Hu. For the past several months, I've been working on an audio project with Dr. Lily Marsh. Our topic is Elizabeth Zimmerman. Lily Marsh did original research on that topic and earned her doctoral degree from Purdue University. And we are working on an eight-part series of conversations about her research. These have aired on odd-numbered episodes of this podcast, beginning with episode 267, and they will continue. So we are about to record part seven this afternoon, and after I'm able to do audio editing on that, I will put that up as episode 279. Your comments and feedback and your praise for that series means a lot to both of us, and we have really found it a gratifying process. We were able to see one another in person again when I visited the um, Washington County area at the end of April for the fiber tour. And now Dr. Lily is spending a month on the West Coast, but we continue to make progress on this project and uh, look forward to bringing it to completion with all eight parts of the conversation. One more piece of news before I get on with the segments that I mentioned. The Yarns at Yin Hu website has been updated and given a new look. And that is thanks to Samuel and his very hard work in finding a theme and making a smooth transition from my old website, which I made a lot of the decisions about the aesthetic of it and they had become outdated, to a new website that is much more elegant and easy to navigate and look at. And in the process, uh, Samuel managed to maintain all of the audio files and links and everything that I was very concerned about losing in making a shift. He really worked tirelessly on it and took on a really big responsibility. I'm very thankful and I love the way it looks. 
I'm motivated to continue to make changes and add to the site and to think about uh, putting my patterns um, available for sale on the site as I try to transition away from having Ravelry be the only place where folks can access my patterns and uh, interact. So it's a slow process, but it's one that has begun, and I encourage you to take a look at the new website, yarnsatyanhu.com. Have a look and tell me what you think. The Back Porch. Since recording my last episode, I have completed Derecho by Allison Green. This pattern is very popular uh, on Ravelry and deservedly so. It's quite simple, but the directions are clear and it knits up to a really great warm weather tee. It's knit from the top down. It has nicely placed increases and some garter stitch detailing, which give it a little bit of texture. And the perfect yarn for this tee is something that has some non-wool content like cotton or linen or silk. In the case of my yarn, it had all of those things, I think. Uh, A lot of variation in the texture, really lightweight um, and cool to wear. It's also something I can throw into my washing machine on a very gentle cycle without worrying about it. So I'm really pleased with that. I knit this sweater on U.S. size 4 needles with U.S. size 3 for the cast on and the sleeve bind off. I pretty much follow directions for the smallest size, doing a little bit of increasing in the front only to accommodate the bust, and adding a purl stitch, a single purl stitch along each side seam to give it a little more structure. I think this is a fantastic sweater. I would certainly knit it again And I have some cotton comfort from Green Mountain Spinnery and some other yarns with a a cotton or linen content that might work very well. The Front Porch. It's been a while since I've knit a shawl and I've been itching to knit a shawl. Of course, I should be working on the shawl design for women who run with the wolves because I have a stole in mind as the final pattern in that series. I have extraordinarily beautiful yarn for it, dyed by Lisa of Fiber Nymph Dye Works. I have a lace motif in mind. I'm thinking about beads but it just takes a lot of headspace to work on something like that. And I, I've struggled with it. I've had some setbacks and I just haven't made the progress I've wanted to. So perhaps this summer I will be able to clear my mind and clear some space to work on this very special design. 
in the meantime, I just want the relaxation of knitting someone else's design for a beautiful shawl. And I have some amazing yarn from Megan. She has gifted me with some of her farm-raised fingering and undyed and uh, a slate. And I forget the other color, but it's like that beautiful yellow honeyed color uh, that's so popular and goes so well with a dark and a light. And I had been thinking of knitting pen, which is beautiful, but then I kind of shifted gears to a little more traditional shape for a shawl. I purchased another skein of yarn, so I would have um, yarn in correct amounts of the colors. And I have cast on Craig Hill by Cheryl Toy. This is a design uh, from Hudson and West collection. And I've knit Hudson and West patterns before using yarn that's not Hudson and West yarn, although it's awesome. And I've used it for some of my designs. Uh, I think their designers design well for farm yarns. Um, because the Hudson and West yarn is 100% wool. It has a certain beefy quality and a lot of integrity to it. I think the patterns that are used to showcase their yarn are great for working with other farm yarns as well. One thing that um, kind of stalls folks from using gorgeous farm yarns that they've purchased is there is some uncertainty how they will work up in patterns where all of the samples have been created with a superwash nylon merino. And you might not get the same drape, you might not get the same look, and it, it can be daunting and it can really slow you down as a knitter to think what to do. So I recommend patterns from a collection like Hudson & West uh, to use their yarn or to use other farm yarns that you may have purchased at festivals or from the farmer directly because I think those are patterns that will work well. Those designers understand how a farm yarn, uh, a toothy 100% wool yarn behaves and they're designing for that. So anyway, <laughs> Craig Hill is one such pattern. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous shawl in three colors with several different kinds of textures. And I've cast it on and I'm in that amazing rhythm of, you know, just knitting and adding that garter stitch border and having the pearl back rows, like the whole thing of knitting a shawl is just totally going on right now. And I'm really enjoying it. This shawl starts with a big swath in this slate gray color with just um, every once in a while a yarn over knit two together to give it a little bit of interest. So I'm having a lot of fun with that. I have also finished up a pair of socks using 
yarn I received from Emily of the Fibertown podcast. Emily and I are engaging in a yarn swap. We purchased yarn from Joanna of Knitspin Farm. We knit a pair of socks. We send each other what's left over. So I was the recipient of Emily's Scotchy Scotch socks, and I've knit up a pair. I don't even think I've taken a photograph. They've just gone in my gift sock collection box. Using those colors was just so great. I loved it. And I've cast on another pair, pulling out some yarn I ordered from Joanna in the Colorway International Festival of Owls. This is some amazing browns, grays, creams, um, in different thicknesses of striping, like Joanna does. And after much deliberation, I did decide to try out the Knit Loops sock pattern by Amelia Archer. This is a free pattern. It's featured in Knitty. And not only is the pattern free, but the designer has also provided a tutorial about how to knit these socks. In the case of Knit Loop socks, if you have not already seen this pattern or heard about it, you are able to obtain the effect of color work knitting by drawing out long loops of yarn from your working yarn, placing them at intervals around the circumference of your sock, and then using them to create a contrast stitch as you work around the sock. So instead of working consistently with two different yarns, you're just every once in a while working this loop of yarn as one of the legs of your stitches. It's very, very clever. And I confess, full disclosure, I did not read the pattern. I only watched the video, which is very informative. And then I set about casting on a sock, knitting the cuff, knitting most of the first stripe. And then the thing is to place your loops at the end of a color stripe, just as you're about to switch to a new color on your ball of yarn. For me, this took some unknitting and re-knitting to get the intervals and colors to go where I wanted them. In the first round, I did make eight long loops all the way around the sock. And so you can see the color work. They're kind of like drips of color work that go down the sock. But then after that, I just focused on the front of the sock. So I didn't make loops going all the way around. I just made three or four in the front of the sock. And then I figured out that I could make the loops different lengths depending on how much yarn I had. So at this point, I have finished working the loops and I have everything just the way I want it for the leg of the first sock. And I don't think I will continue doing that 
down the foot of the sock. I think it's all stockinette from now for now. And then I will try to replicate the look of that first sock leg on the second sock, which will be challenging because there are a lot more variables <laughs> than just regular, you know, self-striping sock yarn knitting. But it's a great challenge. I think it's high time I learned to do something new and challenging with the sack. It's really clever. I think having the video tutorial and watching the designer work this stitch is super helpful. One of the things I picked up from the video is that knitting the loops into the stockinette of your sock can create a little bit of a hole. And she mentioned twisting the legs of that loop um, initially when you first knit it in to close the hole and avoid having a hole there. So that was really helpful and something that I picked up from the video that I probably would not have noticed in reading the pattern. There's a knit along for this knit loop sock. I think it concludes on June 21st. So the goal is to complete a pair of knit loop socks by then. And I am working to knit along and join in the fun. These socks, by the way, are also designed, if you knit them completely according to the pattern, they're designed to be worn right side out and inside out. And they do have a really cool look both ways. So if you're interested in leveling up with some sock knitting and trying something that's just a little bit different, but you don't need to look at a pattern or a chart to do this, it's more of a method than a pattern, um, I think you should give it a try. And I also think it has some potential if you're using self-striping yarn to do sleeves or to do baby knits. You know, it's a technique that you could apply to things other than the socks. So Lots of applause to Amelia Archer for figuring out this new technique. And I have posted uh, some photographs on Instagram. I've updated my Ravelry page and I will have a photograph in case you're still kind of cloudy what all of this knit loops means visually. And take a look at my website because I'll have a photograph posted there. So forth, I've completed the sewing of yet another Amy jumpsuit hack. I think I mentioned in a previous episode that the Ribbon Factory, a craft and fabric store in Stroudsburg near where I live, has a lot of quilting cotton, but a little section where they sometimes have unusual fabrics or fabrics that are in a fiber other than cotton. In this case, I think it's a cotton blend and a colleague of mine at work who sews a lot of her own garments and is very experienced said she thought it was like a light, a very light upholstery fabric. 
uh, because it does have a tendency not to wrinkle. So I think there's a bit of synthetic in it. Um, and it has this like crepey textured look to it. I don't think the fabric has any dye. I think it's in its most natural state. I do see like little flecks uh, like you would in a natural cotton or muslin. And it has quite a bit of weight and heft to it, which is fortunate. And the reason I chose it because it's very light in color. So I wanted something light in color for hot weather months, but of course I don't want something sheer. So I think this is a really good mix of what I was looking for in a fabric at an amazing price point. I think it was like $6.99 a yard or something, and it was well over 52 inches wide, which is another reason that my colleague Barbara said, oh yeah, that's another indication that it could be upholstery weight because those fabrics tend to be very wide. In addition to the, the thicker weight of the fabric, the top is lined, which provides even a little more coverage. And I just used the same pattern hack I used for my last Amy jumpsuit hack with, I don't really think I made any adjustments. No, I don't. It's, it's beautiful. It's long. It's full. It has gorgeous deep pockets. I also made a belt so I could wear the dress with or without a belt. I've been wearing these sleeveless uh, jumpsuit hacks to work um, under a little short sleeve sweater. So this one in the photograph I will post um, for this episode, I'm wearing it with a rift tee in Cotton Comfort. So it's all like very light, neutral, undyed colors, um, which is very comfortable for the hot weather we're having. Because yet again, we go from winter to summer with like three days worth of spring. So it's already blistering hot and I have a need for summer clothing, even though it's not summer yet. So that's the Amy jumpsuit hack. I love it. Another sewing and stitching project that I've begun is my late entry into the Lost Words make-along. This is a make-along hosted by Sarah of the Fiber Truck Podcast, and she's the one who introduced me to the Lost Words and the Lost Words Spell Songs, which is a book. And Sarah also introduced me to the art of stitching garments in the style of Alabama Channon. My last complete garment, uh, Sarah had done the paint aspect for me. And this time I really wanted to take responsibility for the entire garment project. So it's pretty complicated and there are a lot of steps to it. So I'm going to tell you about what I'm doing and the steps I've taken, because even though I just got it started with the stitching, I have been thinking about this since 
December or January and planning for it and acquiring materials. And then finally, I'll close by sharing a little bit more about the spell songs and the origin of this beautiful book. And I'll have some links for you as well. So with Alabama Channon style garment making, um, there is generally a very simple garment cut from two layers of organic cotton knit fabric. So all Alabama Channon is from knit fabrics. So in the case of my garment, I'm using a maxi length tank dress that I've cut from a pattern from an Alabama Channon book. I've also cut a bolero. So you know my love of having sleeveless things and then sleeves to go over it to give a lot of versatility. So the bolero and sleeveless dress really create that versatility. In the meantime, while acquiring the um, organic knit fabric, I also downloaded a fern design from the Alabama Channon website. And a colleague of mine, Mary, who works in the CAD lab, um, cut out the design using a laser printer and a piece of thick cardboard. So I had this beautiful fern stencil. I also acquired some paint. So there was a lot of deliberation over what paint to use. And I finally decided to try some tulip, um, I think it's called color shot fabric paint. It's like a small um, spray paint can. And I bought a color that's like glittery silver. And then it was time to cut the dress. So I had some fabric scraps to practice the spray painting. And that was the part of the project that was giving me the most anxiety and kind of slowing me down because I was just concerned that the paint wouldn't work. And then day after day after day, it was just so windy. I needed calm weather outside and warm enough so that the paint would behave properly. And it just kind of took forever for me to feel like I had a good day. And luckily, Samuel also volunteered to help me and help me think about how to apply the paint and also where to apply the stencil to the fabric. So we did some testing. It worked remarkably well. The stencil behaved. The paint behaved. Then we set up a makeshift table and I put the top layer. So... I'm using navy blue knit for the top layer of the garment and underneath is a very bright teal color. So the teal is sitting on the side doing nothing and the paint is applied to the navy blue, which is the top layer. And I decided to place the stencil so that this 
beautiful fern pattern would just sort of stretch across my midsection from one side of the dress and not quite reaching the other side. So in the front of the dress, this starts on my left and moves across to the right. And on the back of the dress, it starts on my right side and moves across to the left. And that was really important to me because I wanted to create balance. Alabama Channon style stitching and beading creates a lot of weight. And it's important to have that weight balanced on both sides of the dress. So that worked well. The paint dried. This tulip color paint or fabric paint um, dries very flexible. So it's not stiff or difficult to handle. It really worked beautifully. And when Samuel understood that the paint wasn't really a design on the fabric so much as a template for stitching, he just kind of like loosened up and said, oh, well, you don't have anything to worry about. And I felt a lot more relaxed about the whole method and feel like we got a great result. So then it was time for me to do some practice stitching on my sample and figure out exactly how I wanted to do this this stitching motif. Um, To practice, you need to go back to two layers. So the teal green is pinned under the blue. And then I experimented with stitching around the motif starting the thread on the top of the fabric, starting the thread under the fabric, using beads and incorporating those into the stitching and kind of like a satin stitch, Uh, cutting open the top layer of fabric to expose the bottom layer. That's um, reverse negative applique. Uh, All different kinds of techniques until I feel like I've come up with what will work And it does include some beading, at least for the front of the dress. I may eliminate the beading on the back. I'm not sure. I may keep it going on the whole thing. But it's beautiful. It's really mesmerizing to work. Then I panicked. I panicked because I haven't made this maxi length dress before. And Alabama Channon Patterns tend to run very small. I was making mine at the top of the size range. Um, And all of a sudden I just had a vision of myself spending hours and hours and hours on the stitching and the beading and the cutting and then going to sew the dress together and it would not fit. So I sewed the dress together. I made the dress so I could try it on and fit it, which was a consideration because it's much easier to work on the stitching of these things if you're just working on a panel instead of the whole garment stitched together. But I really wanted to see, I guess I could have basted, but I didn't baste. I just stretch stitched the (laughs) garment together and tried it on and it fits. It's great. It's perfect. Um, I was able to really see how that fern reached across in a way that I think is pleasing 
And it motivated me to um, keep stitching on this garment. So the, these projects are very long term. I'm not sure when I will reach completion on this and do all the finishing work and make the bolero as well. But it's the kind of thing where like having a sock, I think I always want to have one of these on the go because the stitching aspect is mesmerizing. And I'm really glad to be working with this fern motif and taking part in the Lost Words make-along. I want to wrap up by sharing a little bit about this book, The Lost Words uh, Spell Songs. This is from, what I'm going to read you is from the Brain Pickings website that's kind of like a, re a book review uh, by Maria Popova. I'm going to read selected paragraphs from it, but I will link the entire article on my website. Words belong to each other. Virginia Woolf's melodious voice unspools in the only surviving recording of her speech, a 1937 love letter to language. In each word, all words, the French philosopher Maurice Blanchot writes a generation later as he considers the dual power of language to conceal and to reveal. But because language is our primary sieve of perception, our mightiest means of describing what we apprehend, and thus comprehending it, words also belong to that which they describe, or rather, they are the conduit of belonging between us and the world we perceive. As the bryologist and Native American storyteller Robin Wall Kimmerer observed in her poetic meditation on moss, finding the words is another step in learning to see. Losing the words, then, is ceasing to see, a peculiar and pervasive form of blindness that dulls the shimmer of the world a disability particularly dangerous to the young imagination, just learning to apprehend the world through language. In early 2015, when the 10,000-entry Oxford Children's Dictionary dropped around 50 words related to nature, words like fern, willow, and starling, in favor of terms like broadband and cut and paste, some of the world's most prominent authors composed an open letter of protest and alarm at this impoverishment of children's vocabulary and its consequent diminishment of children's belonging to and with the natural world. Among these authors was one of the great nature writers of our time, Robert McFarlane, a rare descendant from the lyrical tradition of Rachel Carson and Henry Beston, and the visionary who discovered and brought to life the stunning forgotten writings of the Scottish mountaineer poet Nan Shepherd. Troubled by this loss of vital and vitalizing language, McFarlane teamed up with illustrator and children's book author Jackie Morris, 
who had reached out to him to write an introduction for a sort of wild dictionary she wanted to create as a counterpoint to Oxford's erasure. Instead, McFarlane envisioned something greater. The Lost Words, a spellbook, was born, an uncommonly wondrous and beguiling act of resistance to the severance of our relationship with the rest of nature, a rerouting into this living world in which, in the words of the great naturalist John Muir, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe, just as each word is hitched to all words and the entire web of being. While children's experience is at the heart of this quiet masterpiece, McFarlane and Morris intended the large, lavishly illustrated book for children aged 3 to 100, a book to conjure back the common words and species that are steadily disappearing from everyday life, and especially from children's stories and dreams, a book to catch at the beauty and wonder, but also the eeriness and otherness of the natural world. What emerges is a lyrical encyclopedia of enchantments, radiating the sensibility of a classical natural history illustration, but illustrating a more natural future for the generations ahead. Each word occupies three lavishly illustrated spreads, a poetic summoning spell in the form of an acrostic to conjure back the lost word in a rhythmic incantation composed to be read aloud, a wordless visual eulogy for its vanishment, and a topographic botany of letters spelling it back into language, hearts, minds, and landscape. Half a century after Rachel Carson painted in the opening of her epic-making book, Silent Spring, a dystopian future bereft of birdsong, McFarlane opens with an image of a world, this world, bereft of the words for birds and plants and other beings, and thus bereft of the regard for and concern with them. And this is from the introduction of the book. Once upon a time, words began to vanish from the language of children. They disappeared so quietly that at first almost no one noticed fading away like water on stone. The words were those that children used to name the natural world around them. Acorn, adder, bluebell, bramble, conquer, gone. Fern, heather, kingfisher, otter, raven, willow, wren, all of them gone. The words were becoming lost, no longer vivid in children's voices, no longer alive in their stories. You hold in your hands a spell book for conjuring back these lost words. To read it, you will need to seek, find, and speak. It deals in things that are missing and things that are hidden, in absences and appearances. It is told in gold, the gold of the goldfinches that flit through its pages and charms, and it holds not poems but spells of many kinds that might just, by the old strong magic of being spoken aloud, unfold dreams and songs and summon lost words back into the mouth and the mind's eye. So this book 
as I'm sure you can imagine, is extraordinarily beautiful. It would be a wonderful addition to the library of any child, age 3 to 100. There's also a beautifully illustrated card game that contains not just the images, but also some of the spells and incantations. And I will link to some music and a website with some activities and suggestions, uh, especially if you have a child in your life who might be, you know, approaching the wonder of summer uh, and some activities that engage the natural world. There are really beautiful suggestions on this website. So it's kind of one concept that has tentacles spread into a lot of different ideas um, and extraordinarily beautiful. I think the article does a good job, but it's impossible to completely um, explain how magical um, this, this collection is with the combination of the words the language, and the beautiful images. So I will close by reading the fern spell. And as you can imagine, it's an acrostic on the page with F-E-R-N. And it communicates the beauty of the fern through words. Fern's first form is furled. Each frond fast as a fiddlehead. Reach, roll, and unfold follows. Fern flares. Now Fern is fully fanned.